Hey everyone, this is Patrick Donahoe. It is hard to believe, but we are over halfway through our first season of 2018. So if you've just started to uh, to listen to the Well Standard podcast, we're doing things a little bit different uh, this year. So the Well Standard is being broken into three 120-day seasons. The first season is called Life. The second season is called Pro- uh, Liberty, and the last season of 2018 will be called Property. So we're gonna focus on each of those topics. And so if you haven't had a chance to uh, check out our earlier episodes from Life, I highly recommend you do so. There's some awesome, awesome interviews in there. Now this week's episode uh, of Life is with a very special guest that I was able to uh, to connect with out in Massachusetts. Um, his name is Peter Gray, and he has some pretty amazing views when it comes to education and creating the best possible environment for children. Now, Peter is a research psychologist at Boston College and is an expert in the field of neuroscience. Now, the reason I wanted to get him on is because I, I really believe, go back, you know, the last couple of episodes of 2017, you know, I, I look at where we're at and, and how you get to a point in which you view the world. And I, I believe that there is this significant, profound influence of public education in all of our lives. And it influences the way that we uh, make decisions of where we work. It, makes, uh, it influences the decisions with finances, uh, with relationships, with working with other individuals, with being friendly, and also, I, I would say, with being happy. And so I really wanted to get Peter's view on things because he has a pretty uh, cool book called uh, Free to Learn. He also has a really uh, uh, insightful TED Talk, which we're going to link to in the show notes. But his, his view on education, his view on children is, is right up my alley just because I have kids right now and looking at how they're uh, experiencing the world and uh, gaining you know, really their uh, MO for, for life. Uh, I see some I, I see some you know disparity between what I think they need is and what the public school system is uh, is providing them. So you guys are gonna uh, love us. Now I know that Peter's opinions uh, may raise a few eyebrows. Even when I was talking to him, there were some definite eyebrows uh, from me being uh, being raised because his his ideas are are you know almost the opposite. And uh, as far as what the orthodox view of, uh, of public education is and, and educating our children. Um, so anyway, when it comes to maximizing the greatest asset of you, which is the theme for this season, which is life, uh, education is pertinent. So you guys are going to love this uh, love this episode. So here we go with episode number 10 with my special guest, Peter Gray. Welcome to the special 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating life liberty and property you are currently listening to life season one uh peter welcome uh welcome to the show it's uh wonderful wonderful to have you happy to be here so peter why don't we why don't we start by maybe you just explaining to the audience about what you've what you've dedicated your your career to and what your what your mission has been with you know the books that you you've uh, written. You have a, a wonderful TED talk. I mean, maybe let's just start uh, start with that. Yeah, well, I'm uh, a research psychologist at Boston College. Uh, I've uh, I taught at Boston College for thirty years. I've been doing re- I've been doing research for about forty five years now <laughs> through Boston College. I retired from teaching a while ago. Um, 
for many years, I was doing what uh, you could call neuroscience. I was studying the binding of certain hormones in the brain and trying to understand um, neural hormonal mechanisms in rats and mice. Uh, uh, but I had a son uh, who uh, was uh, going to school and uh, hating it and uh, complaining every single day and rebelling in school, uh, kindergarten through fourth grade. Uh, by the time it reached fourth grade, the rebelling was so, so um, clear and so uh, extreme that uh, the teachers just really didn't know what to do with him. His, my, his mother and I were constantly being called in, and uh, we didn't know what to do. I kept trying to say, you know, to him, you know, just do the work, <laughs> you know, you're just making a pain of yourself. Uh, but he, um, it was, I think it was a matter of principle to him. I mean, from kindergarten on, it was a matter of principle. He just thought he was being asked to do stupid things, that they were wasting his time, that it was being like being in prison. And he used that term. I mean, they're, you're sending me to prison when you send me to school. <laughs> And, um, you know, ultimately it reached a crisis point at which uh, it became very clear to his mother and me that we, it was time for us to stop fighting with him about this. And we found um, a, a school with quotation marks around it that um, he was happy with. It's called the Sudbury Valley School. It happened to be actually within walking distance, a couple miles away from where we lived in Framingham, Massachusetts at that time. And uh, my son thought, oh, you know, when he saw the school, he said, this is what a school should be. <laughs> you know, this is, I'm free here. I can think here. I can do what I want here. I can interact with other people over the whole range of ages. Um, this is a school uh, founded in 1968, so it's now about to finish its 50th year. Um, at a time when there were a lot of uh, sort of radical free schools founded, but this one was founded um, uh, on a little bit more solid basis. Um, they had a financial model to make it work. Uh, they had a clear constitution, a uh, way of solving problems and disputes. But this is a school at which there are children from age four through high school age enrolled, but they're not uh, segregated by age in any way. They're not assigned to classes. They're not graded. They're there are, there are, in fact, not even courses offered, although if students get together and say they'd like a course in something, they can form one and they can get a staff member to lead it generally. But it's basically a place where there are lots of kids from age four on through uh, about 18 or 19 years old. Um, lots of things to do, lots of things to play. There's an outdoor area, there's indoor areas, there's uh, various kinds of shops. And nobody's telling you what to do. As long as you don't break the rules and the rules are made democratically and don't have anything to do with learning, the rules simply have to do with the kind of rules that any community needs of, uh, you know, not destroying things, not, <laughs> not interfering with other people's rights and so on. Um, so although my son thought this was ideal, I was skeptical at first. I can uh, imagine, yep. I was intrigued. Uh, but um, 
I didn't want him his uh, his options to be cut short by virtue of uh, attending a school that is this radically different from what we think of as school. The result of that was that I ended up um, wanting to talk with graduates. I wanted to see, well, what are the people who've finished, who've gone through here and who out there in the world, what are they doing? And at first I kind of did this informally, and then I ended up doing this as a formal research study. I identified <clears throat> essentially all of the graduates, almost all of the graduates of the school at that time. This was some time ago, the school was smaller then, but there were already about 80 graduates of the school, some of whom had done all of what would be their K through 12 education there. Uh, and I located nearly all of them. Uh, they filled out a pretty extensive questionnaire, and some of them I also interviewed either personally, if they still lived in the area, or by telephone. And the result of that study allowed me to relax <laughs> and also led me to be just extraordinarily curious. I mean, here are people, here were young people doing, and not all that young, some of them a little bit farther along in life, doing, um, who had gone to a school that's nothing like what we think of as school. Who it sounds had, like the complete opposite. It's, it's in many ways the complete opposite. Who had been playing, exploring, sitting around, talking, um, uh, following whatever their own interests are, um, and they're doing okay in life. In fact, they're doing quite well in life. Um, those who wanted to go on to higher education because they were going into some kind of a career that required it didn't seem to have any difficulty getting in, including in some cases the pretty prestigious schools, even though they'd never taken any of the kind of required courses that colleges say you're supposed to take. Um, some had never taken a course before, you know, they'd never taken a test, never read a textbook. Somehow got in, talked themselves in, uh, you know, these people, one thing that happens in this kind of self-directed education is you become pretty good at understanding who you are. You become pretty good at communicating with other people. You, uh, you've developed some passions. You're able to talk about those passions. Um, this is kind of impressive to college uh, administrators because most of the young students that they're, that they're looking at um, don't have all that. You know, they may have all A's, they may have perfect scores on the SATs, they may be done the right uh, volunteer programs, but, you know, you talk to them and they don't seem to have a lot of true interests. They don't seem to um, know exactly why they want to go to college. And, and these ones, if they're going to college, they do, you know, because otherwise, why would they go? They certainly didn't feel like college was a necessity. They didn't think, you know, school below college was a necessity for learning anything. So they're, they're going to college because they've got a reason to do it. In addition, those students who chose careers that really don't require college were doing very well out there in the world. Um, some had founded businesses. Some were going on in the arts. Some were... Uh, some were uh, craftspeople doing very well. Um, one was an inventor, one was captain of a cruise ship, just to give an example. One had gone on into the high fashion industry as a very successful pattern maker. No college for any of them. Um, 
And and there were others even who had gone on to academia, or there's one who uh, is now a professor of mathematics at that time as a graduate student in mathematics. So they'd gone on in the whole range. One of the things I found was that, um, uh, because I asked them about what they did when they were students, what kinds of, you know, since mostly they're playing, I asked them, what did you play at? And um, and independently of that, I was asking them about their careers. And when I put those two kinds of, the responses to those two questions together, it was very interesting to see that in about half the cases, there was a very clear relationship between what they had played at as young children at the school and what they were now doing as a career. So, you know, that that woman who was captain of a cruise ship, she was playing with boats in the in the pond at the school. And by the time she was a teenager, she had apprenticed herself to a ship captain on Cape Cod, took advantage of the fact you don't have to be on campus all the time. Uh, the one who's an inventor was playing uh, a constructive place. He was building things. He was getting staff members to take him to the dump and bringing back bicycle parts and making workable bicycles and selling them for a few dollars. I could go on and on with many examples. So here are people who are spending their time doing real things that they love. And you know what's interesting in our society? We, we have in many ways such a rich culture. If you are good at something and you are passionate about it, you, there's a pretty good chance you can find a way to make a living doing it. Especially and, in this uh, day and age. Especially in this day and age. So there's a certain sense, even back then, this was quite some years ago I did this study, that quite you, you could say that a large number of them were entrepreneurs in one way or another. Not surprisingly, um, you know, they're not going in to become middle managers. They're not going on for the most part. They're certainly not going back then. There were still a few assembly line jobs. Nobody was going on for those kinds of jobs. They were going on into jobs in which they were still pretty much in charge of their own lives. They were still, they were continuing a self-directed path. Now, this is before, I mean, this is your due diligence as your son is going into this, into this school. But then you took an approach where you dedicated a, a good portion of your career to, to it. So we're, maybe, maybe you'd go into the, the theory that you discovered around this because it is very, it's completely unorthodox and it's, you know, it, but again, it, it works out in the end to what the objective of, I would say, those that do, you know, uh, are proponents of, uh, of, you know, common core or, or typical education. Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, gradually I changed fields. This was so uh, intriguing to me. I mean, this ran so counter and nobody else was doing this research. And for a long time, I couldn't even get people interest, anybody interested, certainly not people in, the, in schools of education. But I was just fascinated by it. And um, so here, you know, these people are somehow becoming educated. If you define education as acquiring whatever knowledge and skills it is that you need to acquire to go on to a successful adult life and a happy and meaningful and productive life, they were becoming educated. E even though, you know, the staff members certainly aren't educating them. They're not, they're, they, they don't call themselves teachers. They're not teaching. Yeah, there are actually relatively few staff there. Uh, 
today there's about 200 students and only seven staff members and the staff members kind of do all the, the administration and so on you know so but I, want to, not, I want to clarify there's there are I would say kind of like Sudbury accredited schools around the around the world you're just talking about the school that you're you're son I'm talking about the one my son went to, but now there are uh, many, there are several dozen Sudbury model schools. I, I wouldn't say accredited, Credit, there's yeah. no official uh, crediting of them, but there are, there are several dozen schools that have deliberately modeled themselves after the Sudbury Valley School, some of which are, are now really quite large and substantial and have been around for a while and have even followed up on their graduates. So. It's, a repl it's replicable. You, can, you know, there are other people doing this. There's nothing magic about the particular staff who happened to set this one up. Um, so this works. Um, and they consider it, the, you know, the, the students and teachers are kind of considered on, on the same level, right? There's no kind of hi hierarchy, correct? There's no hierarchy at all in any kind of official way. The, uh, the, all the rules of the school are made by vote at the school meeting. The school meeting meets once a week, and whether you're four years old or whether you are uh, an adult staff member, you have one vote. <laughs> As I said, there are 200 students and seven staff members. So if there were ever students versus staff, which, of course, it never is in a setting like this, no. uh, you, you would know who would win. So... This, you could say the school's – the other thing, to be a staff member there, you have to be voted back in every year. No staff member has tenure. You have a one-year contract, which has to be renewed every single year. And if the majority of the members of the school meeting, the majority of staff and students combined, vote against you, you're not going to be uh, back on the staff the following year. Um, that having been said, the uh, – couple of the people who are in the founding group of the school are still there. They've been reelected to staff every year for 50 years now. But there are people who've come and gone. There are people, and there are people who've wanted to be staff and never got elected. There are people who've been staff for a while and did not get reelected. So what a brilliant way to have staff. You know, we, most people think that's crazy. I've even heard people say, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like the, asking the insane in an insane asylum to, to run the asylum. <laughs> this on the asylum. What, what an awful concept about what children are. You know, children are really not insane. <laughs> no. Children know what their self-interest is, and they can distinguish between staff members who are really doing the work there and really helping the school go and are helpful to them, and staff members who are not so helpful. Even though the staff members, some of the staff members who've left who've been not voted back in, they're the kids recognize they're nice people. They're friendly. You know, they're, they're not people who, uh, you know, in some sense there was some regret about their going, but the sense that they're not just, they're just not really contributing as much um, to the school as other people are. All right. So Peter, you got, so, so walk, walk us through the theory behind this because it sounds like you, you know, I, I have done lots of birthday parties for my kids and, and, you know, we, we take them to different where there's lot, you know, lots of kids. I mean, you envision that and it's just, it's just chaos, right? So I would say for those that are listening who are used to, you know, this, this sacred cow of, of Common Core or, you know, the traditional school system and, you know, pr protect that to the, you know, to the, to, to the highest levels. I mean, to them, they're probably saying, you guys are crazy. I'm, hang, I'm, I'm going to turn off this podcast. I mean, walk maybe walk through the, the theory because I didn't grow up in that school system. Um, yeah. And 
but I, at the same time, this is intriguing to me because I did not like school and I, you know, reading your book and knowing your theory, I, I really want to dissect that just so the audience understands that it's not chaos and this is, you know, a very healthy way in a, so many respects in which kid, uh, children develop. Yeah, it's definitely not chaos. Uh, the uh, school has lots of rules. Uh, the rules made democratically, and because they're made democratically, they're pretty well respected by the kids, and they're enforced democratically. The, really, the people who founded the school didn't so much found it on the basis of a theory of education. They founded it on the basis of a theory of democracy. Okay. The founders believe that um, in a democracy, and they're, they're very big on American democratic principles and the basic human rights and, 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 uh, and methods of democracy, and they felt it's just uh, not, you know, here, here we are uh, espousing these democratic principles, and yet we are raising our children in schools, sending our children to schools that in the words of Danny Greenberg, one, the primary founder of the school, is the least democratic institution that we have. <laughs> it's, it's the dictatorial. most yeah. autocratic, and yeah. children have no rights in school. So they hear about human rights. They hear about democracy, but they're not practicing it in school. So they, not surprisingly, they grow up kind of cynical about democracy, right? And so the view of the founders of the school was that in a democratic, um, in a democratic country, we want children growing up really understanding democracy. And the only way you can understand it is if you experience it, where you have the rights and privileges that go with being a democratic citizen. So the children, as young as four, are full democratic citizens of this community. So that was the... That was the founding principle. They believed on faith that children, uh, given freedom, given opportunities, would learn what they need to know. They just took that on faith. Now, most people wouldn't take that on faith. I didn't take it on faith. I, I needed some evidence for that. I needed to, to see that they, they were learning. So the, uh, so then I began, so then I got interested in how they're learning. Uh, they clearly are learning in the sense that they're going on educated, right? They're all learning different things, but everybody learns to read, not at the same time. Some kids learn early, some late. Everybody learns to use numbers to the degree you need numbers in our culture. We're a numerate and literate culture, so not surprisingly, living in this culture, you pick up you learn, you pick up reading and writing, and you pick up numbers to the degree that you need, need them. And if you go into something that uses sort of a uh, calculations beyond the kind of calculations that you need in everyday life, you learn those calculations. So I got interested in how, ch what children are doing there at the school. And so I had a graduate student, one of my PhD students, who did his doctoral thesis, spending um, many, many days at the school as kind of a fly on the wall, um, just making observations systematically about children's interactions at the school. One of the things that the uh, staff members told us uh, is that the school works because it's age mixed, because younger children are freely interacting with older children and vice versa. The, uh, the suggestion was that if you try to do a school like this and you segregated children by age, it wouldn't work. 
The reason is children are learning from one another, and children are especially attuned to those children who are a little older than themselves, a little bit more far along. The, the children who are, so for, for example, for a five-year-old, the seven or eight-year-old is a much more uh, cool and useful model than an adult is. Uh, if a five-year-old sees a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old reading and talking about books or climbing trees or doing whatever it is they're doing, the five-year-old wants to do that and mm -hmm. thinks, well, this person can do it and this person isn't that much bigger than me and maybe I could do that too. So they're powerful models. If a five-year-old who sees an adult reading books, that's no it's big deal same. at all. Adults are in a whole different world. They're you know, I, that, that doesn't mean I could read books, but if a seven-year-old is doing it. So, and so the modeling that occurs, in addition, the interactions, one of the things we found is that the children don't segregate themselves by age. They, the younger kids are attracted to the older kids, and believe it or not, the older kids are attracted to the younger kids. They like to play with younger kids, and um, they play all kinds of games in an age-mixed way, and whenever that occurs, the older children are boosting the younger ones up to a higher level of activity. Yeah. So in this day and age, they might be playing a computer game. And the computer game involves words on a screen, and you've got to read the words. And some of the kids can read, and some can't. The ones who can read are, in some sense, teaching the younger ones to read, not because they're teaching them to read, but just because in playing the game, they're pointing out the words and sometimes even pointing out, you know, there's a code here. You can, you know, you can, these letters have sounds. You can hear them talking about that. Or they're playing games that involve numbers and calculations and they're showing the younger ones how to, how to add or divide or do whatever you have to do to calculate the average score. Um, some of the computer games these days are amazing, involve amazingly complex uh, mathematics, um, as well as the other kinds of logical thinking. So, so at outdoors, the older children are scaffolding the younger ones into, into uh, various kinds of sports that they wouldn't be able to play on their own. They wouldn't be able to organize it on their own. They wouldn't be, you know, I, one of the examples I like to give is if you had just all four-year-olds in a school, you could never have a simple game of catch because no four-year-old can throw the ball straight enough for the other one to catch it, and no four-year-old can leap and jump and catch the wild throw of another four-year-old. But put an eight-year-old in the mix, and suddenly catch is possible, and they can both enjoy the game, and they're both stretching their abilities because the eight-year-old can throw the ball directly into the hands of the four-year-old, and the eight-year-old can run and catch the four-year-old's wild throws. So this kind of scaffolding is occurring all the time. Uh, at the school, and it's really and truly the key to how children learn. Now, what's interesting to me, later on I got interested in um, hunter-gatherer cultures, and um, I ha had a colleague at Boston College, college who uh, herself had lived in a particular hunter-gatherer culture for many months, and um, and she was telling me about the children's lives in such cultures. And I said, you know, that's a lot like Sudbury Valley School. The adults in that culture believe that children learn by playing and exploring. And the children, from, believe it or not, from age four through their teenage years, just like at Sudbury Valley, are 
free to play and explore pretty much all day long. They're not expected to do any serious work. There's nothing that is called teaching in this culture, although adults might point out which mushrooms are poisonous or those types of things. But, you know, they don't go out and give them lessons in how to use a bow and arrow or how to track game or how to how to find hidden roots and so on. They just expect children to observe and learn and practice in their own ways through play. And so the children are afforded an enormous amount of time to play and explore, and they play in the age-mixed groups away from the adults, and they're playing in ways that they acquire all the kinds of skills that you need in that society. So the same thing is, is occurring at Sudbury Valley, but they're playing at the kinds of skills important to hunter-gatherers. They're playing at, with bows and arrows and tracking and digging sticks and building dugout canoes and making the kinds of instruments and singing the songs of their culture. And children at Sudbury Valley, of course, these days are playing with computers. Why wouldn't they? That's the most important tool of our culture very clearly today. They're playing with all kinds of other, they're playing with cooking equipment, they're playing in many cases with woodworking equipment and so forth, sporting equipment, playing with, they're reading books, they're doing the kinds of things that are important to our culture. So I developed this idea that children come into the world biologically designed to educate themselves. And as I'm really an evolutionary-oriented psychologist. Even my previous work on the brain was, was um, founded kind of on principles of uh, Darwinian uh, evolutionary psychology. And um, so we have been a species for, you know, we have been human beings transferring culture from generation to generation now for, at least a hundred thousand years, some would say a million years. You know, it's a little different. Archaeologists and anthropologists have different views on that. Schools have only been around and common for only about 150 years, right? Mm -hmm. So, throughout essentially all of our biological evolution, if if these observations regarding hunter-gatherer cultures are correct, uh, children were educating themselves. Um, and in fact, it wasn't just that one hunter-gatherer culture. I ended up uh, surveying anthropologists who had studied seven different uh, hunter-gatherer cultures on three different continents with the same findings, basically, for every one of them. So if these modern-day hunter-gatherer, these hunter-gatherer cultures who sort of survived into, most of this research was done in the mid to late 20th century, survived into that time, uh, represent the way we lived before agriculture, we can be pretty sure that children were, were playing and exploring and educating themselves that way th throughout human history uh, until very, very recent times. What this means to me is that, you know, these characteristics that we think of as the the, the, the almost the defining characteristics of childhood, their curiosity, Think of how curious little children are before they start school. They get into everything. They want to know everything. As soon as they can talk, they're asking questions. They, you know, you can't stop them from exploring. Every new object, they want to, they want to explore it, see what this does. They want, you know, as soon as they can talk, they want to, they want to explore your mind using words, especially as they begin to get older. So, um, so but that's squelched, but that's so, that, 
it becomes squelched with just the you know the the dynamic that exists in the the typical education well that's right so what happens is there once they go to school their questions don't count anymore their their curiosity is just a disruption and they are told you know we don't have time for that we have to work on the questions of the curriculum and you know they're not even the real questions of the teacher these are just the questions of the curriculum that Somebody has decided these are the questions that children are supposed to answer, and they've also decided there are certain right answers to them, right? And what children are supposed to do is they're supposed to learn the right answers to these questions, and that's what education is. Curiosity gets squelched. You know, children would not just lose their curiosity automatically once they're five or six years old. We take it away from them by telling them that their questions don't care. And the other Another uh, human instinct, of course, is play, playfulness. And when you look at children who are really free to play in any culture, when they're free to play for hours a day, which they're meant to, to be able to do, they play at all of the kinds of skills that are important to human beings everywhere. They play at physical skills. That's how they develop. They play at rough and tumble and chasing one another around. That's how they develop their bodies. They play at climbing. They play at building things. It's how they use, learn to use those opposable thumbs that we mm -hmm. humans have. They play with language, and that's how they become sophisticated with language. They play socially, of course. That all, ev all children everywhere want to play with other kids more than anything else in the world, and they learn social skills that do it. They play at dangerous things. You know, isn't that interesting? Other mammals do the same thing. They climb trees to the point where they feel frightened. They they uh, do all kinds of things that are, that are somewhat frightening, and other mammals do that too. And what are they doing? They're learning courage when they do that. They're learning, I can do that. I can put myself into a frightening situation, and I can keep my head together, and I can get down and live to tell the tale. And that's how children develop this abil the ability to face real emergencies in life. In play, they're free to fail. Nobody... Nobody's judging them. So they grew up thinking, it's okay to take risks. I can take risks. Um, and if it doesn't work out, so what? You know, I, I just try it again, or I try it a somewhat different way. Children are doing that all the time in play. And that's not the principle of typical education, where if you make a mistake, you're branded, branded a certain way. And I think probably psychologically that affects you in the, in the long term. So school teaches you really not to take risks. School teaches you to uh, do the tried and true, <laughs> to, you know, to do what you already know how to do <laughs> and, um, and even do that kind of carefully and timidly because somebody might judge you uh, as wrong, might give you a low grade if you do it in some crazy, creative way that uh, the teacher doesn't understand what you're doing. So you really... You really can't be creative in school. You have very little, I can't, shouldn't say you can't, and, you know, there are some opportunities to, but very little opportunity to be creative. Play is called recess. It's a break from school. And increasingly, we don't even have recess anymore in, in many schools, or it's been reduced to almost nothing, something like 15 or 20 minutes for many uh, elementary school children. And then, we, and then we diagnose kids with ADHD if they have difficulty sitting still all that time and doing the kind of boring work that they're being asked to do.
So this is what I would, I mean, P- Peter, as you've been, as you've been talking, I mean, I, there, there's so much that, that, res- that resonates. And I, I would say it, it, it aligns with my situation because I have a, a young, a young son, but I have a, a 11 year old daughter and a 13 year old daughter. And the dynamic of their relationship is so powerful because it hits on just how much Jack looks up to them and how much, he, how much he learns from them. I mean, he's speaking, he's not even four and he's speaking full sentences and, you know, he has great conversations with them. It's, 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 it's profound. But then my daughters, you know, I, and this is where I discovered your book, which was you know, a little less than six, uh, about six months ago, my, my business coach uh, told me about it because I was relating to him in a, a situation I had with my oldest daughter where she didn't have good, she didn't get good grades. And I got very, you know, upset with her. And then I, I caught myself and I realized that, you know, just the, the education system is not conducive to, I would say, I don't know if it's all personalities, but, you know, she's very creative. She, loved dan- she loves dance. She loves, you know, ballet and gymnastics. And she doesn't like the science or the math. I mean, it's not intriguing, intriguing to her, but yet she's forced to do it and then punished for not doing it well. And that, you know, I, I, I saw the hurt in her. And, you know, and I, and her and I had, a, you know, several hour uh, drive where I, where I had to, you know, uh, apologize, but it's one of those things where I look at, you know, the education model and it isn't, it isn't, um, it isn't that old and it was, and you have to correct me here because I'm, I'm not, I don't know the, the history behind it, but I know that, you know, a lot of the birth of our modern school system was in Massachusetts, right? And, and it was, you know, modeled more after, you know, the, the uh, uh, Germany or Prussian system, where it did have that, you know, classroom of all the same ages and it was, you know, confined to these, you know, physical boundaries, right? And it was to train military and train, you know, train factory workers. And so correct me if I'm wrong there, but I know that, you know, kind of Horace Mann took the, took the model and instituted that in, you know, in, in Massachusetts and it took hold throughout the rest of the, the country. Uh, and it's just, you know, perpetuated on since then. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, schools, you know, schools in some sense really got their start uh, as far back as the um, Protestant uh, Reformation. Uh, The Protestants believed it was important uh, for everybody to read the Bible. So they began first having Sunday schools uh, to to teach reading so people could read the Bible. And then it became regular schools. But so the so part, so the purpose of those schools that started off often in especially in Prussia uh, was to teach reading, but even more than teaching reading, it was to teach to indoctrinate children in biblical doctrine, right, and also to teach obedience. So the purpose of the original schools, these original schools, was which were Protestant-run schools was obedience training and indoctrination. That was clearly the purpose. No way were they interested in critical thinking. They were, critical thinking was bad. No way were they interested in creativity. I mean, this was a time, remember, that willfulness is sinfulness. The job, the whole job of raising children was to get them to obey. You know, you, children would be beaten if they're, if they talk back, if they don't uh, obey. And schools arose out of that, and originally for, for uh, religious reasons, but then as states became more powerful, states took them over, but still pretty much for the same purposes, obedience training. And in Massachusetts, as you say, where, you know, the Horace Mann made, 
created the first compulsory state-run school system. Um, the, it was very clear that um, the purpose, you know, his, his view was, you know, we've got all these people coming from foreign countries. Um, we've got to um, get everybody kind of thinking the same way. We've got to get people, we've, it wasn't to create diversity of thought, it wasn't to create original thought, it was to create a narrowing, a funneling of thought. We need people, you know, people were, people were very distrustful, not just Horace Mann, all the kind of elites were distrustful of democracy. And so the way that democracy was going to work, and they didn't use this word, but you were going to kind of brainwash people <laughs> so that everybody would grow up to have certain beliefs, certain common beliefs. And it wasn't so much, what's interesting, and I learned this kind of looking back historically, is that it really in Massachusetts and in the colonies in general, Children, almost all children could read, even before there were schools. You didn't really need schools to teach children to read. Mm -hmm. The bigger concern was what they read. <laughs> you know? The bigger concern was, to, was that people were reading, you know, they, they were reading stuff that might create revolutions. <laughs> you know, they were reading. And, and, the, and of course, even after... Um, so, there was, so the idea was to, was to control children. And the first schools... It was only a few weeks a year that children went to school. Um, and so school That's was right, still yeah. a fairly minor part of people's lives. Now, what has happened ever since, ever since school became compulsory, is they've become a bigger part of childhood. So even when I was a kid, even when I was in elementary school, so now you kind of know how old I am, was back in the 1950s, School was not the big deal it is today. <laughs> the, the school year was, e even then, in the 1950s, was five weeks shorter than it is today. We had a whole extra month in the summer. We had an extra week of vacation. We had, um, there was never any homework in elementary school when I was a kid. There, once in a while, a teacher might ask us to write a poem or a story at home, but never did we take books or worksheets back and forth between school and home. And believe it or not, uh, I'm not sure if this was true in every grade, but I know that in fifth and sixth grade, because I remember that very clearly, we had a six-hour school day, but we were outdoors two of those hours. We had half-hour recess in the middle of the morning, half-hour in the middle of the afternoon, and a full hour at lunch. So we were never indoors in our seats more than an hour at a time. You know, and there was kind of a... And so what has happened since then is school has just gradually, year by year, decade by decade, subsumed increasing parts of children's lives. Homework, once you've got homework and you begin to elicit a parents as having to sign off on homework and parents are supposed to make sure their kids do the homework and even in some ways help. So parents become like assistant teachers. And so parents now are on the kid's case, <laughs> you know, and you can't get away from school. I mean, you've got school at home. Your parents now are like teachers making you do that homework. You, summer is no longer totally free. You've got summer reading, for God's sake. You're not even allowed to choose your own books in the summer if you're 
fortunately, most kids ignore the summer reading, and they, you know, and most parents let them get away with it. But if your parents are serious about it and they're on your case in the summer, even then you're not free from school. After school, instead of just going outdoors and playing and just doing, following your own interests and finding the kids in the neighborhood to play with, now we've got all kinds of adult organized school-like activities, whether they're youth sports run by adults or they're Chinese calligraphy classes or, 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 or karate or whatever it is, you're off doing some school-like adult-led activity where do you have the opportunity to learn what you actually like to do? Where do you have the opportunity there to isn't, yeah. really play and explore, discover what you wanted to do? So when I was a kid, it was still possible. I, I like to say that I had school, but I also had a hunter-gatherer education. More, I spent more time outdoors playing with other kids than I spent in school, and that was true for most kids at that mm-hmm. time. Playing, exploring, developing hobbies, you know, figuring out things that you know adults knew what you were doing, <laughs> you know, you, and, and you developed interests. I developed a lot of different interests, and I developed a lot of skills. When I look back, even though I've been in school all my life, in a sense, right, I, the, uh, the, the skills that I learned as a child and as a teenager uh, that are really important to me, Far more of them come from my life of play and, and exploration out of school than come from anything that happened in school. So, Peter, it, we, I mean, we're having this conversation, and you know, what's, what keeps going through my mind is that there's this you know, pervasive problem throughout, not, I mean, problem, throughout the entire country where kids don't, they don't just le- don't like learning Okay, or going to school. I mean, they don't like school. I think kids are curious naturally and want to learn, but this just completely, you know, impedes that curiosity to an extent. But you also have jam-packed schedules. Uh, you have, you know, extracurricular activities, and the homework is just ridiculous sometimes. Just in, and it's not the amount; it's the nature of the homework. And then you, you know, you look at the, you know, correlative issues that our our youth are having. Uh, whether it's, you know, obesity, or as you mentioned, you know, diagnosis of certain disorders, which, you know, they're prescribing, you know, destructive medications, but then you have, um, you know, a suicide, you know, there's kids, child suicide. I mean, okay. even here in Utah, it's a very, you know, family oriented community. There, there's, there's suicides going on. And do you, do you make a kind, you know, as you've researched this and learned about this over the years, are you, are you correlating, you know, really the, you know, the, the direction of education with, you know, really some of these, you know, some of these challenges that we're facing as a society? Yeah, this is something I've written quite a bit about. Um, you know, over this um, same kind of 60-year period from the mid-1950s until today, as school has gradually taken over more and more of children's lives, and as we have made school more and more anxiety-provoking, you know, not just because there's more of it, but we, we put so much more emphasis on grades, we put more emphasis on testing, kind of, uh, we, we uh, have all these honors classes, and somehow kids are led to believe if they don't make it into the honors classes and do well, or into the advanced placement classes and do well, 
their lives are going to be ruined somehow. Parents, you know, somehow convince them of that. Teachers convince society in general convinces them of that. So even those kids who are doing well in school, they worry they're not doing well enough if they're not getting A's in the honors classes or not going to be valedictorian. I mean, we have, we have basically put children into a situation through school and through kind of competitive activities outside of school in which they are constantly feeling like they're in competition with other kids. They're not, you know, they're not, you're in that situation and that is always an anxiety provoking situation. Um, and, and they're, and they're being deprived of play. So what's happened over this same period of time. And to me, it's, um, it's a no brainer that there's a cause effect relationship here. There is well-documented increase, dramatic increase in depression among young people, in anxiety among young people, in suicide. So, and it's not just that we're identifying these things and we didn't before. Even by standard uh, clinical questionnaires that have been given in normative groups over the decades, uh, there have been dramatic changes. So, for example, just to give one example, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the version of it for teenagers um, has been given to normative groups of teenagers since the 1940s. And there is a scale within it that assesses depression. And if you look at the cutoff for what today would be suspected major depressive disorder, the rate of young people who are above that cutoff is about eight times what it was in the 1950s. And this has been a gradual increase. Similarly, there are questionnaires that are assessing anxiety. And if you look at what would be the, uh, the rate of the, you know, the cutoff for suspected clinically significant generalized anxiety disorder, Again, it's somewhere between five and tenfold what it was in the 1950s. There's been a gradual increase. The suicide rate for children 15 and younger is now six times what it was in the 1950s. The suicide rate for young people between age 15 and 24 is about three times what it was in the 1950s. The suicide for old people like me has gone way down. We've become a better world for old people and by this measure, at least, a much worse world for children and teenagers. So to me, there's no, there's, you know, it's a no-brainer. I mean, take play away from children's lives, and life becomes pretty depressing. Put children in a situation in which they're constantly being judged and evaluated and measured and, uh, you know, and compared to other kids being told they've got to get into some super college or they're going to be failures in life. And that's pretty anxiety provoking. There was a study done uh, just a couple of years ago by the American uh, Psychological Society on, um, on uh, anxiety in America. And they found that teenagers are the most anxious people in America and that 83% of them, when asked what is a major source of your anxiety, point to school. School. So isn't that something? I mean, here, what we're doing, I, 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 I believe it's child abuse. I believe what we are doing to children and teenagers is really abuse. Adults would not put up with it. You or I, if we had to do what 
aren't what children are forced to do. Be in an environment where you have to ask to go to the bathroom, where you're not allowed to talk to your coworkers next to you, where you're not allowed to... Collaborate, work in groups. You're not allowed to collaborate. It's cheating if you collaborate, right? You and I would not put up for it, nor would any other adult. This would be regarded, you know, as, as you probably know, that there's a way of kind of ranking careers in terms of how odious they are versus how fun they are. And the most odious careers are the ones where you're micromanaged, where you have essentially no control over what you yourself are allowed to do. And that's what we're putting our children in. Well, I think the natural, you know, the natural instinct of, of, of human nature is, you know, we, we want freedom. We want, we want independence and that's what we're robbing kids of. And that, cur- that curiosity is really building a foundation for, for their, for their future. And I mean, it's an, it's a, it's a huge problem and I, and I see it. And so I, I know we don't have all day to talk about it because I could talk to you seriously for another uh, couple, couple of hours because you know, I've, I've come to love education and, and it's not, you know, books. It's, I love learning. I love, I love discovery. I, I despised school. And, and now, you know, as, as an adult, I'm, I'm realizing that and still looking at where our society is and what I have as a parent uh, in regards to options, you know, I've, what would you, you know, for the parents listening to this, what, what are some bits of advice? Like what, what direction do you give as far as where, where to start? Because it's an, you know, it's an ominous problem and it's kind of like, where, where, where can I make the big, biggest difference? Where do I, do I start? Do I plug my, you know, completely unplug my kid from school? And then, you, so it's one of those, like, where do you, like, where do you start? What are some of those? Well, you, know, you know, more and more people are unplugging their kids from school. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the U.S. government does a poll every four years of, uh, of where uh, school-age children are going to school. And every time they do it, a higher percentage of them are not going to school at all, are doing homeschooling of one sort or another, most of them homeschooling, and some of them in, in Sudbury-type schools, but a large number of them in homeschool. Something like 4% of school-age children today are uh, homeschooled, close to 4%. And an increasing number of those homeschoolers are calling themselves unschoolers because they're recognizing they don't have to do school at home. They don't have to give a curriculum. They don't have to test the kids. They don't have to say, my kid is a sixth grader now and is doing sixth grade stuff. They find that the kids learn better if the kids are allowed to read what they want to read and and the adults end up kind of supporting the kids and helping them find playmates, getting them together. Sometimes they form uh, community centers or learning centers where there might be courses offered there, but the kids can take them or not take them. So that's happening more and more. I would suggest uh, for people who are possibly interested in this, <laughs> I'm involved with a nonprofit called the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, ASDE, A-S-D-E. Google that and you'll find a lot of information there. You can also find information on my blog and in my book about this, and there are many, many other books coming out. So, but if you're not ready to take that step, if you're not ready to take your child out of school for some kind of self-directed education, there, I, think that, I think that the big lesson that's really important is all this uh, propaganda about how important school is, how important it is that your child get top grades, make it into the into the best colleges, it's not, 
it's propaganda. It's not true. <laughs> it's not true. When you look at who's successful in this society, many of them did not go to the top schools. In mm -hmm. fact, there's some research. There's research indicating other things being equal. You come sort of from the same social class and so on and so forth. The one who goes to Harvard versus the one who goes to the local state college, they do just about as, they do as well. There's no evidence that you actually do better by going to that elite college. There's no, nobody looks at your grades from high school later on in your life. The important thing really is to figure out what you like to do and figure out how to do it. And increasingly, we're beginning to find, you know, it is still true, unfortunately, that a lot of uh, employers, you know, look for people who've got a college degree, and maybe they, and maybe some of them, they look for, for the more elite college, but more and more are recognizing that having a college degree, even from an elite college, does not mean you're prepared for this career. Nope. More and more employers are recognizing what you want is people who are passionate mm -hmm. about that kind of job and who are self-starters, who are creative, who, uh, who are critical thinkers. And, um, and, and, if, and these are not fostered in school and more and more employers are beginning to recognize that. So I think over the next few years, it's going to become even less important. I was talking to, to some people who are involved with a major uh, toy company, and they say that they used to hire only college graduates, and then they realized, because they hired a few who weren't college graduates, the non-college graduates were at least as good, if not better, and they stopped looking at whether they're just beginning to look at what, what kinds of uh, attributes does this person have that they can bring to the job, and... Um, so that's, that's beginning to happen. I honestly think that the days that we think of the four-year liberal arts college as sort of the transition from um, childhood to your career, um, I think those are numbered. I think we're recognizing that, uh, you know, if you took that same money, <laughs> you know, talk about money, you took that same money that uh, parents are spending for their kids to go for that four-year job, you invested that into a good investment, <laughs> you know, put it into some kind of retirement investment, that's going to be a lot of money later on. And, and the kid is going to get an earlier start on a career. It's not at all clear that college, from a financial point of view, is a good, a good investment. Of course, it depends a lot on what you've chosen to go into, and it's still the case that there are some kinds of careers that would be very difficult to go into, if not impossible, if you don't go to college. So sure. but I think that's going to change. I think we'll see the day before long that if you want to be a doctor, what's the point of going to a four-year liberal arts college? You don't learn anything about doctoring there. Directly in, to medical school. <laughs> instead of going to college, what you should be doing is you should be working in a hospital. You should yeah. be doing, even being an orderly, being an assistant to a nurse. You find out, do you like being around sick people? Do you like, you, do, there you can see what doctors do. Do you really like being a doctor? You can get some skills that are re relevant to being a doctor. From there, go to medical school. You know, and, uh, I think the world is going to change in that direction. And some people think I'm overly optimistic, but I see the beginnings of that. And I think that, I think that schooling, as we have, as we have been doing it, is starting to burn itself out. It's sort of reached its logical conclusion. It's gone to such an extreme 
that more and more people are recognizing that not only is it not helpful, but it's actually harmful to the development of the kinds of characteristics that we want people to have as they go into adulthood. Well, I'm agreeing with everything you're, you're saying. And I, I've, I've mentioned on the, this, this podcast uh, before, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, kids and their access to information, there's, there's, there's very little that they cannot figure out and are figuring out. It's just one of those, it's still this, you know, societal belief that this, this is the way things are done. And, you know, I had, I'm not sure if you, you know, follow uh, Ron Paul and what he's doing with, you know, his, uh, his, his, um, you know, Liberty classroom and some of the other education mainly for, you know, pr- uh, homeschool curriculum. And I, you know, had dinner with him a few, few months ago and it's one of those, like, there's this, there's this increase in popularity. There's this increase in this, you know, I don't know if it's going slow. I don't know the, you know, the, the universal statistics, but because of technology, there's so much access to, you know, meaningful information and meaningful education where it isn't this, you know, this, um, you know, dictatorial type of system where, where kids are, you know, supposed to be fit into this this square box, right? Regardless of what their personality is, regardless of who, who they are. And I, you know, I've, I've hired hundreds of people over the years and, you know, I don't, I do not care about, uh, with my experience with employees and culture and initiative, and I have a little bit different of a business, you know, that it's not, it's not important. And I think a lot of other businesses are, are realizing it. So it, need, it needs to happen because education is just, I don't know. It's, it's been bastardized. And I, 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 like I said before, I love to learn. I love to discover that, but I, but that's not what kids are coming to understand as, as education, at least mine, mine are concerned. And we've mentioned many, many here, but we're going to list all of your, you know, the, the, you know, I have your, we have your, we have your book, right. And we're going to put, you know, links to that links, to the blog links to your, uh, the nonprofit that you, uh, you are involved with. We'll put that all on the blog and all through the the show notes and the, the emails that we send out. But it, you know, if there's yeah, if there's any anything else you want to 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 mention as far as resources or first steps, uh, I'll give you uh, I'll give you the last word and then we'll we'll wrap things up. <laughs> yeah, well, thank, uh, you know, I, I, again, if I would encourage people to take a look at the uh, web page at the. Uh, uh, at the website for the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. There's another nonprofit that I'm involved with, along with Lenore Skenazy, who wrote the wonderful book, Free Range Kids. <laughs> and that nonprofit is called Let Grow. And what we're trying to do there is to bring back free play, free neighborhood play, uh, bring back play opportunities, help help working with communities and working with schools to create opportunities for children to get together with other children and play in a wide variety of ways in the way in self-directed play without adults telling them what to do. So that's another endeavor that we're involved, we're involved with that, that I'm involved with. So, um, well, we're going to do our best to, to spread the word because, you know, a lot of your, your research, a lot of what's been said on this, uh, you know, on this episode, you know, it's, it's something that I feel uh, strongly and deeply about. And, and I know that there are a lot of individuals that are becoming fed up and frustrated with, you know, what has become the, the status quo. 
And so thank you. I mean, thank you for your research. Thank you for your involvement in these, in these groups. Uh, and I know it's going to make a difference. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. And it's been a pleasure talking with you. Okay. Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.